3 today, verses 14 through 21. You want to turn there in your Bibles, and you can read along in the outline. This is the sixth sermon in this series on Paul's prayers called The Priority of Prayer. And we're going to look at one of the great prayers of the Bible today. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we have come to sit under the teaching of your word. And so we ask that you would enable us to come with interest and attentiveness and by the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ as we find it here in Scripture. Enable us to be rooted and grounded in love as a routine part of our daily life. Do this desperately needed work in each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Amen. Well, as we are well in the midst of that hectic time of year called the Christmas season, we may be confused by the name often used to describe a frenetic time of year, which many people refer to as the holiday season. My daughter, Rebecca, who's a first-year teacher, has a calendar at her school that refers to December as Stress-Free Family Holiday Month, in case you weren't aware of that. The term holiday has images of relaxation and vacation and recuperation. But for many of us, the push between Thanksgiving and Christmas is anything but relaxed. Between shopping and parties, concerts for kids, and calling on relatives, we find ourselves being pulled in so many directions we don't know how to respond. We forget this is the Advent season a time of preparation and anticipation of Christ's birth, and yet so often it's filled with apprehension and trepidation. So I thought it would be a good time for us to take a stress test to see how you're faring so far. So just a few uh, questions here so you can gauge how it's going uh, in your home. You know you're under stress if... Conversations begin with, put the gun down, and then we can talk. <laughs> That's a good sign. The school principal has your cell number on speed dial. <laughs> your pets 
are on Valium. <laughs> the number of jobs held down by family members exceeds the number of family members. No one has time to wait for the microwave TV dinners. Family meetings are mediated by law enforcement. You have to check your kid's daytimer to see if he has time to take out the trash. And my favorite, you're trying to get your four-year-old to switch to decaf. <laughs> if any of those things apply, it's probably stressful in your house. You are laughing way too hard at that last one, David. It's... The stresses of daily life, whether they're big or small, real, imagined, whatever it is that we're dealing with, in reality, they become wonderful opportunities to see God's grace at work. It's during times of stress that our response to that stress says far more about our lives than what we would say if anyone asked. We need to know how to respond to uh, stress, and we need to be able to face everyday life with a wisdom that exceeds our common ability. We need a wisdom that far exceeds our problems, and we need a wisdom that's greater than our stress. We need to know how to respond to the spouse who doesn't respond how to handle kids that add tension to the home, and how to juggle final exams and at least get a few hours of sleep. What we need is God's grace to guide us through daily life. And Paul prays here for the Ephesians that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in order that they'll be able to face life's challenges with a strength that surpasses common ability. So that's what Paul prays for. And that's what we should be praying for. And if we're going to do that, we have to begin by listening to the scripture and by seeking God's help and understanding how to apply uh, the scripture to our lives and to our church. So the aim of this series on prayer is simply to work through several of Paul's prayers in such a way that we hear God speak to us today and to find direction for improving our praying for God's glory and our own good. First thing we see here, verse 14 and 15, are the reasons for prayer. The reasons for prayer. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason, Paul says, he kneels before the Father and prays. For what reason? Clearly the words, for this reason, point to something in the preceding verses. But when we go back and read verses 1 through 13, we immediately notice something rather remarkable. The first verse of that section also begins with the words, for this reason. And then the sentence kind of trails off, Ephesians uh, 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And as a guess, I think Paul is heading towards this prayer for the Ephesians, and then he, he pauses and decides to say more about uh, his apostolic ministry, its relationship to the gospel and the church, and then he gets back to it in verse 14, which means the words for this reason in verse 14 
direct us back to verse 1. And those words in verse 1 direct us back to chapters 1 and 2. So we have to go back to Ephesians 1 and 2 in order to summarize the reasons for Paul's prayer. Very quickly, in those two chapters, Paul praises God for his sovereign grace in bringing lost Jews and lost Gentiles together into one new community. And God accomplished this through the redemptive work of his son on the cross, as John prayed for us earlier, that we would not disassociate the cross from Christmas. And then Paul concludes at the end of Ephesians 2 with this. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul adds, for this reason, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For what reason? Paul prays for this reason, namely, God's declared purpose in creating this new community to bring the people in it to a kind of a spiritual maturity that's portrayed in this extended metaphor of being a holy temple to the Lord, a dwelling place for God. He's talking about the church. He's talking about us. We are to be a holy temple. We are to be a dwelling place for God altogether. And so Paul's prayers are now in line with God's purposes. And God's declared purposes become for Paul the reason for advancing these prayers to his heavenly father. And as we look at this, as we work through these prayers, as we look at all of these, we have a few more to go. We're beginning to learn, I hope, that God is more interested in our holiness than our happiness. He delights more in the integrity and purity of his church than in the material well-being of its members. He shows himself more clearly to men and women who enjoy and obey him than to men and women whose horizons revolve around jobs, houses, and health. He is far more committed to building a corporate temple in which his spirit dwells than he is in preserving our reputations. He's more inclined to display his grace than to flatter our intelligence. He's more concerned for justice than for our convenience. He's more dedicated to stretching our faith than our popularity. And he prefers that his people live in discipline, gratitude, and holy joy rather than in pushy self-reliance and glitzy happiness. He wants us to pursue self-denial, which leads to life, not self-fulfillment, which leads to death. And so with all that said, two petitions emerge directly from our text. Paul prays, one, that God may strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being, and two, that we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. So first we find the apostle praying for power, verse 16, praying for power. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with 
power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So at heart here, the first petition is a prayer for power. Paul regularly prays for power. Already in this epistle, as we saw last week, Paul has asked God for power for the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And now, here in Ephesians 3, Paul prays for power more directly. He says, I pray that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Thought, what a great prayer for the Christmas season. We all start winding down and running out of energy and strength. And it's sort of like, we just got to make it to Christmas. Thought, what a great prayer. But the nature of this prayer, the nature of this power, is carefully controlled. The power for which Paul prays is mediated through God's Spirit. He says, I pray he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. And no less important, the sphere in which this power operates is what Paul calls the inner being. He says, I pray you may be, uh, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Exactly what does Paul mean by that? I think we gain the clearest picture of what Paul means when we consider another passage he wrote where he uses the same expression, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, just remember, whatever bad happens to you, light and momentary is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When Paul says our inner self is being renewed day by day, he's using the same expression that he uses in Ephesians 3. Paul's body, his outer being, is wearing away under the onslaught of years and persecution. The inner being is what's left when the outer man has completely wasted away. Now, most of us in the West have not suffered great persecution. But all of us are getting older. I hope that's not new news. In fact, sometimes we can see, particularly in elderly folk, something of this process that Paul has in mind. We all know senior saints who, as their physical strength is reduced, nevertheless, they become more and more steadfast and radiant. Somehow they live as if they already have one foot in heaven. And as their outer being weakens, their inner man runs from strength to strength. If you're looking for someone to learn this from, Look to the seniors among us. Now, the Christian's ultimate hope is for a resurrection body. But until we receive that gift, it's our inner being that is being strengthened by God's power. 
and living in a culture where so many people are desperate for good health, but most are not very desperate for transformation. Christians have an urgent need to follow Paul's example and pray for God's power in the inner being. Paul's primary concern is to pray for a display of God's mighty power in the domain of our being that controls our character and prepares us for heaven. So we have to ask two important questions about Paul's petition here about his prayer for power. And first is, what purpose does it have? After all, many people pursue power. Back in Acts, Simon the sorcerer wanted the power of the Spirit so he could manipulate people and maintain his position in the community. And I'm so glad we no longer have people around us who want power so they can manipulate people and maintain their position in the community. <laughs> now, most of us know Christians who talk about the power of God in their lives in a way that seems dangerously close to a perpetual game of one-upsmanship. Their chase after power is some prideful way. And it's a long way removed from the stance of the Apostle Paul, where he says in Philippians 4, or excuse me, Philippians 3, verse 10, he prays that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here we see Paul, who wanted to experience more of the power of Christ's resurrection, also wanted to share more deeply in Christ's sufferings, a balance almost unknown in the West. Exactly why, then, does Paul pray that Christians might know more of God's power We'll better grasp the nature and focus of this power for which Paul is praying if we observe its purpose. He says, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's why he's praying for power. It's not so you can maintain your position or manipulate people. It's so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And you can't help but notice the Trinitarian character of this prayer. Paul asked the Father, verse 14, that we might be strengthened through his Spirit, verse 16, so that Christ, verse 17, might dwell in our hearts through faith. Even so, on first reading, that sort of strikes uh, us as kind of strange. Don't we hold that Christ by his Spirit takes up residence in us? when we become Christians? Why then does Paul say the purpose of his prayer is that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? Isn't he already doing that? And it helps to recognize that the verb may dwell is a strong one. Paul's hope is that Christ will truly take up residence in the hearts of believers as they trust him. That's the through faith part. To make his heart, our hearts, his home. Now, I can enter your house, but that doesn't make it my home. But when I go into my home, it's familiar. I know where things are. I know who's supposed to be there. It's comfortable. And I think what Paul is saying, a lot of us, Christ has come into our house 
but it is not yet his home. Robert Boyd Munger wrote a little booklet many years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home. I encourage you to get it. Because Christ wants to come in and make his home with you. He's not just coming for a visit. This passage is powerful, but it's also practical. In concrete terms, it spells out the changes Paul expects to take place in the lives of believers or to maintain the language of prayer here in Ephesians 3. It spells out the changes that Paul conceives of as he prays that God's power will operate in our inner being so that we will become suitable residences for the risen Christ. That's the kind of purpose that Paul has in mind when he prays for power. But I said there were two questions. We have to ask a second question, and that's with what resources is this prayer going to be answered? It's one thing to ask, but what about the supply? And the text, again, answers our question. I pray, Paul writes, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What are the riches of his glory that Paul is relying on? For Paul, the expression refers to what God has already secured for us on account of Christ. It's clear from another better-known passage where it's used, Philippians 4.19, where Paul writes, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. From Paul's perspective, Everything that comes to us from God comes through Christ Jesus. He has won our pardon. He's reconciled us to God. He's canceled our sin. He's secured the gift of the Holy Spirit for us. He's granted eternal life to us. He's made us children of the covenant. His righteousness has been accounted as ours. He's risen from the dead, and all of God's sovereignty is mediated through him and directed to our good and to God's glory. This is the Son whom God sent to redeem us. And in God's all-wise plan and all-powerful action, all these blessings have been won by his son's triumphant death and resurrection. All the blessings God has for us are tied up with the work of Christ. So the supply of God's riches and glory in Christ Jesus are as lavish as the benefits secured by Christ. And to depreciate the supply is to depreciate Jesus. To doubt the provision that God has for us is to doubt the provision that God has secured in his son. If you say that God hasn't done enough for me, you're saying that Christ's work on the cross wasn't good enough for you. It is far wiser to understand and believe that the God who has already lavishly blessed us in his son has no less lavish reserves of power to pour out on us as he brings us to Christian maturity. And that's one reason why Paul petitions God for this transforming power. He's persuaded that the supply is as extensive as the benefits secured by Christ on the cross. The first 
first petition then is a plea for power, power to be holy, power to think, act, and talk in ways pleasing to Christ, power to strengthen moral resolve and overcome temptation, power to walk in transparent gratitude to God, power to be humble, power to be discerning, power to be obedient and trusting, power to grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's praying for. That's what he wants for these people. That's what he wants for us. And that brings us to his second petition, that we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. Simply put, Paul is praying, 17 through 19, he is praying to know love. He is praying that we will know love. Here, too, the point emerges directly from the text. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And like the first petition, this one's a prayer for power. Here, however, the power of God in our lives given in response to this prayer, operates a little differently. Its purpose is to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. Now, Paul doesn't mean to suggest that believers have never known God's love for them in Christ Jesus. Far from it. He knows they're Christians, and he acknowledges they've been, verse 17, rooted and grounded in love. He cannot think of their salvation without reminding himself it utterly depends on God's sovereign love. The remarkable fact about this petition, however, is that Paul clearly assumes that we, although we're Christians, don't adequately appreciate the love of Christ. He wants us to have power to grasp just how great the love of Christ really is. This isn't a prayer that we might love Christ more, although that's a good thing to pray for. It's a prayer that we might better grasp his love for us. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. Paul's not asking that we might somehow uh, become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ or to grasp uh, how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He's asking God that we might have power to grasp the dimensions of that love in our experience. For the Apostle Paul, knowing about God isn't the same thing as knowing God. Because knowing God means an experiential knowledge of God. It's a common aspect of New Testament prayers. Paul prays in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's something you experience. The Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is an experiential quality to this knowing Jesus. And so when Paul asked God that Christians might have the power to grasp the limitless dimensions of Christ's love, 
He doesn't use the language of just uh, mere intellectual comprehension. I mean, how do you appreciate love? How do you measure it? Can we speak of having 40 buckets of love? Can we talk of having uh, 20 acres of love? It's hard to measure. So Paul resorts to metaphor and paradox. His metaphor is one of measurement. He says, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ. But then the paradox is more stunning. He says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That is, to know what is beyond knowing. Well, how do you do that? Now, we mustn't think that Paul is appealing for some sort of uncontrolled mysticism. For him, the love of Christ is not something to be privately experienced. Christ's love is public. He's writing to the church. He's writing to all of us together. Christ's love was supremely displayed in history. On a hideous cross outside of Jerusalem, many years before Paul wrote this, and that love was a wonderfully rich redemptive plan that God himself has graciously disclosed across the centuries and then brought to fulfillment in the death and resurrection and exaltation of his son Jesus. And what Paul is trying to get across is that apart from the power of God, Christians have too little appreciation for the love of Christ. We need the power of God to appreciate the limitless dimensions of that love. And so again, Paul prays for power. A deep and genuine perception of the love of Christ. And that deep and genuine perception of the love of Christ rarely comes to a person who's not spending much time in Scripture. Even so, that kind of perception may be triggered by tragedy or by suffering. We talked in the high school uh, class this morning about how God works even when things are difficult and when things are hard. And when you meet people who just seem to know God better than you do, there's always some hard, difficult story behind that and how they came to know God through difficult circumstances. And again, it's another way to learn how to know God. Listen to the senior saints among us because they have more hard stories than we do. And sometimes it's when we suffer, when we observe the universality of death, when we're debil debilitated, when we observe cruelty, when we're sidelined by illness, it's then we're prompted to stop and reflect on the love of God to sinners and rebels like us. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in our place, who the Bible says learned obedience through the things he suffered. And the trinkets and the baubles that otherwise capture our attention fade away and the eternal things assume their rightful place. Nothing focuses us better than pain. And then we know what it means to confess 
that God's love is as shoreless and endless as eternity. And Paul wants us to grasp something of the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So he prays we might have God's power that will enable us to take this step. But why? Why does he think it's so important? Well, he tells us. He wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To put it simply, Paul wants us to have power to grasp the love of God in Christ Jesus to the end that we might be, <coughs> excuse me, spiritually mature. In fact, in the next chapter in Ephesians 4, he tells us that's why we utilize our spiritual gifts in service to the church. Look at that passage, Ephesians 4. It's in your outline. He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, till we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So your service, you're using your gifts, is still to build maturity amongst the whole church. And Paul assumes that we cannot be uh, as sp spiritually mature as we ought to be unless we receive power from God, which enables us to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. Now, we may think we're particularly mature Christians, you know, because of our theology or because of our education or our experience or our traditions or simply because we're Presbyterians. But Paul knows better than that. He knows we cannot be as mature as we ought to be until we know the love that surpasses knowledge. And that's why he prays as he does. He wants us to be able to have a grasp, to grow in our grasp of Christ's love so that we'll be mature, filled with all the fullness of God. It takes nothing less than the power of God to enable us to grasp the love of Christ. And part of our deep me-ism is manifested in such independence that we really don't want to get so close to God that we feel dependent upon him. Just as in a marriage, a spouse may flee relationship uh, that's too intimate, uh, judging it to be a kind of invasion of privacy, when in reality such a reaction is a sign of immaturity and selfishness. So also in the spiritual arena, when we're drawn a little closer to the living God, many of us want to back off and sort of stake out our own turf. We want to experience power so that we can be in control. And Paul prays for power so that we will be controlled by God himself. And our deep and pathetic self-centeredness is precisely why it takes the power of God to transform us. If we're to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, if we're going to grow to the level of the maturity that Scripture holds out before us, we can't do it on our own. It takes the power of God. And so Paul prays for that. And so should we. And the last thing Paul wants us to see uh, in us, to some degree, wants us to see our own self-centeredness. And that becomes clear because look at the last part of this prayer. Look at the central concern 
of prayer, verses 20 and 21, the central concern of prayer. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul has been asking God for blessings of extraordinary value. He's petitioning the Almighty for blessings that are immeasurably great. And now in his closing doxology, he puts those petitions in perspective by stressing two themes. First, God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. It's a staggering thought. Of course, this confidence is nothing more than the implication of his belief that God is, in fact, omnipotent. To an all-powerful God, there are no degrees of difficulty. Surely Paul is saying something more than that about God. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, not only because he's powerful, but also because he's generous. Not only because he's powerful, but also because he's generous. He loves to give good gifts to his children. You know, we're approaching Christmas, and I can say as a father, maybe some of you have this experience, I have more joy watching my children open their presents than I get in opening my own presents. I have way more joy in watching my grandchildren open their presents. You know, there's a little of God in that, little. He loves to give good gifts to his children. Dr. John Stott, recently retired, 65 years of ministry, probably the most influential evangelical living in the world today, and he writes, there are seven, seven stages in this statement by Paul. He says, first, he is able to do because he's not idle, nor inactive, nor dead. Second, God is able to do all that we ask because he hears and answers our prayers. Third, he is able to do all that we think because he knows what we think before we think it. And fourth, he's able to do all that we ask or think because he knows it all and can perform it all. Fifth, he's able to do more than all we ask or think because his expectations are always higher than ours. Sixth, he's able to do far more than all we ask or think for he doesn't give his grace by calculated measure. And seventh, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think because he's a God of super abundance. Pay close attention to that phrase, far more abundantly. It sounds strange to our ears. We don't talk like that. But the translators chose that odd uh, formulation. Some of your versions might say exceedingly abundantly or something like that. Because here Paul coined a Greek word that had never been used before. It's hyperekperisau. It has three parts, hyper, above and beyond, plus ek, out of, plus parasau, abundant. The word means infinitely above and beyond all human measurement. 
I mean, it's one thing to do what some, something when someone asks you to do it. It's another thing to go beyond what they ask you to do. But it's something else to go uh, infinitely beyond what they ask you to do. And God's ability is off the chart. It can't be measured. He says it's so great it can't even be imagined. And this verse is teaching us the exceeding, abundant, immeasurable, infinite ableness of God. There are no limits to what God can do. We simply cannot ask for good things beyond God's power to give them. We cannot even imagine good things beyond God's power to give them. And so Paul's concluding doxology gives us this powerful incentive to pray. Second thing you see there, beyond what God is able to do, is God's glory is the ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer. And why does he put that in at the very end? Because it's sad to think, even this late in the prayer, we could still stumble rather badly. But that's often the case. It's possible to ask for good things for bad reasons. We may desire the power of God so to operate in our lives uh, that we may become more holy, that we may ask for power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ and yet distort these good requests by seeing their fulfillment within the a framework where the, revo- where the world revolves around our own improvement. So we can ask for the right things and for good things, but for totally selfish reasons. You know, I want power and love and holiness because then I'll be better because it's all about me. If you learn anything from the prayers of Paul, learn that it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. How tragic, then, if our prayers for good things still leave us thinking of ourselves first. Still thinking of God's will primarily in terms of its effect on us. Still longing for blessings simply so that we'll be blessed. Now, we may have improved a little on the quality of what we asked for, but the deeper question is this. Do we bring these petitions before God with a goal that God might be glorified? That's the deepest test. Has God become so central to our thoughts and to our praying that we can't ask for anything without longing for an answer that brings glory to God? God grants us the power to know how great his love for us is. And if we don't grasp God's love, we won't be concerned with God's glory. It all comes down to God giving you the power, the ability to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Ken Davis is a Christian comedian. He uses comedy and storytelling to make a biblical point. And he tells a story that I listened to the other day about a woman who one day out of the blue received a dozen roses. The roses were delivered with a card. And she opened the card and it read simply, Someone Who Loves You. And she searched the card, but there was no name. Who could have sent her these beautiful flowers? Since she was single, her first thoughts were of all the men in her life, old boyfriends, new acquaintances. 
And then she wondered perhaps if it was her mom or dad. Perhaps somebody at work. Well, after spending most of the day thinking about everyone it could possibly be, trying to figure it out, she finally called a friend to help her go over all the possibilities of who would have sent her a dozen roses. And so she was talking to this friend, and something her friend said tipped her off. And she asked, did you send the flowers? And her friend confessed. And when the woman asked her friend why she had sent the flowers, this friend replied, you sounded so depressed the last time we talked. I wanted you to spend a day thinking about all the people who love you. And I thought, what a wonderful friend. What a wonderful gift. What if we started out the day by thinking of all the people who love us, all the people who are loved by us? I think that would change the way we go about our day, especially if we include on that list the creator of the universe. The one who says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God because that is yours in Christ Jesus and he is someone who loves you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.